Welcome to the Clovercrest Baptist Church podcast. For more information about Clovercrest Baptist Church, go to clovercrest.com.au. Paul and his co-worker Silas went to the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. And after just one month of telling people the good news about Jesus, a large number of Jewish and Greek people gave their allegiance to Jesus and they formed the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen Jesus as the true Lord of the world, it led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense, Paul and Silas actually had to flee from the city. And this was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so this letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than okay, they were flourishing despite this intense persecution. He designed the letter to have two main movements. First is a celebration of their faithfulness to Jesus, and then he challenges them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And then these two movements are surrounded by three prayers. The letter opens with a thanksgiving prayer. The two movements are linked together by a transitional prayer, and then the whole thing is concluded with a final prayer. It's a beautiful design. Paul opens by giving thanks and celebrating the Thessalonians' faith, their love for others, and their hope in Jesus despite persecution. He goes on to retell the story of their conversion, how they used to be idolatrous polytheists, and they were living in a culture where all of life was permeated by institutions and practices that honored the Greek and Roman gods. And Paul talks about how they turned away from those idols to serve the living and true God, and that they're now waiting for the coming of God's Son from heaven. So in a city like Thessalonica, transferring your allegiance to the creator God of Israel and to King Jesus, this came at a cost. Isolation from your neighbors, hostility from your family. But for the Thessalonians, the overwhelming love of Jesus who died for them and the hope of his return, it made it all worth it. Paul then retells the story of his mission in Thessalonica and of the dear friendships he formed with the people. He uses really intimate metaphors here. They treated him like their child, and he became like their mother and like their father. He says, we were happy to share with you not only the good news from God, but our very selves, because we came to dearly love you. Paul reminds us here that the essence of Christian leadership is not about power and having influence. It's about healthy relationships and humble, loving service. He reminds them that he never asked for money. He simply came to love and serve them in the name of Jesus. And so Paul moves on to reflect on their common persecution. Just like Jesus was rejected and killed by his own people, so now Paul is persecuted by his fellow Jews and the Thessalonians are facing hostility from their Greek neighbors. And Paul draws a strange comfort from knowing that together their sufferings are a way of participating in the story of Jesus' own life and death. Paul then shares about the anguish he experienced when he heard of the hardships the Thessalonians had after he and Silas fled. So he sent Timothy to support them and see how they were doing. And to his joy, Timothy discovered that they were going strong. They were faithful to Jesus. They were full of love for God and their neighbors. And they longed to see Paul as much as he longed to see them. 
And so Paul concludes with a prayer for endurance. And what's cool is that he introduces here the topics he's going to address in the letter's second half. He prays that God will grow their capacity to love, that he'll strengthen their commitment to holiness as they fix their hope on the return of King Jesus. So he opens the letter's second movement by challenging them to a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. In contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around them, they are to follow Jesus' teaching about experiencing the beauty and the power of sex within the haven of a committed marriage covenant relationship. God takes sexual misbehavior seriously, Paul says. It dishonors and destroys people and their dignity. Following Jesus also means a commitment to loving and serving others. So Paul instructs them that Christians should be known in the city as reliable people who work really hard, not just to make money, but so that they can have resources to provide for themselves and to generously share with people who are in need. After this, Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians had raised about the future hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in the church had recently died, most likely killed as martyrs, and their friends and family are wondering about their fate when Jesus returns. And so Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and loss, not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. And Paul uses a really cool image here. He uses language that would normally describe how a city subject to the Roman Caesar would send out a delegation to welcome or meet his arrival. Paul then applies this imagery to the arrival of King Jesus. He too will be greeted by a delegation of his people who will go to meet the Lord in the air as they welcome and escort him back to this world where he'll establish his kingdom of justice and peace. Paul then wants the Thessalonians to see how this hope should motivate faithfulness to Jesus. So he pokes fun at the famous Roman propaganda that it's Caesar who brings peace and security. Of course, Rome's peace came through violence, through enslaving their enemies and military occupation. And Paul warns that Jesus will return as king one day and confront this kind of injustice. Followers of King Jesus should live in the present as if that future day is already here. Despite the nighttime of human evil around them, they should stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns here on earth as it is in heaven. Paul closes all of these exhortations like he began with a hopeful prayer that God would permeate their lives with his holiness, that he would set them apart to be completely devoted and blameless until the return of King Jesus. 1 Thessalonians reminds us that from the very beginning, following Jesus as king has produced a truly countercultural or holy way of life. And this will sometimes generate suspicion and conflict among our neighbors. But the response of Jesus' followers to such hostility should always be love, meeting opposition with grace and generosity. And this way of life, it's motivated by hope in the coming kingdom of Jesus that has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. And so holiness, love, and future hope, that's what 1 Thessalonians is all about. So you got it? Yeah? No worries. 
Some of you might have thought, did we play that in 1.5 speed? <laughs> sort of came at you so fast. I would encourage you to get on the Bible Project website and spend some time looking at that again. Maybe listen to it uh, in the car and just immerse yourself in the context of this book. Uh, we're starting a new series called Living Faith and context is so important to understand who the letter was to and why was the letter written, and then understanding how, what that can mean for us today. Firstly, what is, the, what is um, Paul saying to the original hearers, and then what does that mean to us today? So that's a seven-minute clip. It went for a while. You hung in really well, but I would encourage you to look over it again, and you can head to the Bible Project uh, for that, like I mentioned. Also, I would encourage you to join us in a Bible reading plan. So you can go to clovey.com.au, and uh, their Bible reading plan is there for the next six weeks as we sit in this book, 1 Thessalonians, and we deep dive into what it means for us. See, Thessalonica was, a, was a, quite a large city at the time, the second largest uh, in, in Greece uh, after Athens, and it was quite a cosmopolitan city. It was wealthy. They had a thriving seaport industry, and then into this comes this young church, this church that Paul was writing to was literally months old, less than a year old, and was experiencing this severe persecution for its new life and new way following Jesus. And this is what we step into. This is the context that we step into as we dig into the first chapter here. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 says this. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before God, uh, before our God and, and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul usually starts his letters with a thanks. It's how he begins. It's his custom. But in this thanks to the, the church in Thessalonica, what he's actually um, saying to them, and he's giving them a framework of what the church um, should actually look like. He's saying to them in this, in this opening thanks, he's saying, this is actually what the church should look like. And, and he talks about three things uh, around what the church should look like. The first one is that the church is the gathered community of God's people. In verse 1, it says, to the church of the Thessalonians. You know, in the New Testament, uh, the church uh, is always the people. Uh, it's not a building. Uh, Clovercrest Baptist Church uh, is us. It's God's people gathered together. We are his church. We are blessed with an amazing facility, but the facility isn't the church. We are the church, and Paul is emphasizing that at the beginning of this letter to the church of the Thessalonians. The second is that the church has its identity in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we are the church because what God has done, and what God has done through Jesus, through his death and through his resurrection, through making all things right, through who we've been worshipping today and sharing in the elements of communion, our identity can be in God the Father. And he's saying to uh, this young church, he's saying the most important thing is that you know that you are the gathered people, you are the church, and you're the church in God and Lord Jesus Christ. That foundation piece, that identity piece needs to be in Jesus. And Jesus is in fact the leader of the church. 
Like it doesn't really take long. You can look around left and right. And even with masks on or being online, you can know that there's probably a lot of things you wouldn't agree with the people sitting to your left and your right. Or can I push it even a little bit further? You might not even choose to be friends with some of the people that are part of our church. It's life and reality, right? I'm not trying to be rude. It's just the truth. But yet what brings us together? Our shared identity in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that brings that unity. He is the one that brings that identity in us so that we can worship him. And then thirdly, he says that the church is marked by faith, love, and hope. Verse 3, we remember before God, uh, our God and our Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not talking about these inner virtues that you can take out of the wardrobe and then put on on a Sunday and and put your Sunday clothes on and go, yep, I've got my faith, I've got my love, I've got my hope, I'll wear them on a Sunday. No, he's actually saying this is what marks you as the people of God. Uh, In this environment, in this persecuted environment where they are struggling to stand up for their new faith in Jesus, he's saying the things that mark you, your foundation pieces are your faith, are your love and your hope. And these things were hard. They were not just given away freely. He talks uh, about the, the, uh, the work that produced faith, the labor that prompted love, and the endurance that inspired hope. And it's for these reasons that the, these foundation pieces, uh, the, the church of the Thessalonians is the gathered people of God, Uh, It's the fact that their identity is in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are marked by faith, hope, and love. He's saying, for those reasons, we say thank you. He gives thanks to God for the fact that it's this young church that's making such an impact in their community. And it's these foundation pieces that are so important. And when it comes to our living faith, foundations are crucial. And this young church that was experiencing persecution in the first century and hardship actually gives us much encouragement today. I don't know if you've noticed about the state of the church in the Western world, but it's not good. It's not in a good place. It's been rapidly in decline for a number of years. And actually, we probably need to relook at many ways at our foundations. You know, our Western society is becoming increasingly secularized. It's becoming more individualized and faith is declining. But what's interesting is if you look to the majority world, if you look to where the gospel is growing rapidly, we look to places like India and China, we look at Africa and and South America, we look to where uh, nations are being developed and the gospel seems like it's growing up and to the right. Actually, in about the last 150 years, uh, the, the church in the majority world has um, done what it took the church in the West over 1,500 years to do in terms of growth and development. It's fascinating. And when you look at the church in the majority world and how it's growing at the moment, and I've been doing a bit of work and a bit of research around this with my studies, it's interesting when you compare that to what Paul is saying the foundations of the church are to the church in Thessalonica. When you talk about um, being the gathered people of God, uh, having your identity secure in God the Father and a church that's marked uh, by, by work or a labor or an endurance of faith and love and hope, that's what we're seeing in the church in the majority world. 
There's this one church in Africa called the Nairobi Chapel Church. It began many, many years ago by a few white colonial members and over recent decades has grown into a church that's nearly 100,000 people strong with over 300 church plants. And we don't know a lot about these churches, some of these churches in the majority world because, like, honestly, people like me and others from Western world are still doing a lot of the writing about things. But with humility, there's a lot for us to learn because the foundations of these churches that are growing the fastest are similar to the foundations that we read about in 1 Thessalonians 1. So I think the right thing to do, the response would be, what do we need to learn? How can we hold up the mirror with honesty and go, well, the church maybe in the West is struggling. We are praying, saying, God, do it again. We desire and we seek your renewal. But the reality is is that for some time that hasn't been the case. And I think if we're honest with ourselves and if we're humble enough, we can ask ourselves the questions around how are we going with the foundations that Paul talks about here, about what church should look like. Us being the gathered people of God sent out into the world, that our identity is deeply in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we are prepared to work and endure and labor for faith, for love, and for hope. I think there's a really big challenge right off the bat from Paul to us in our culture and in our time today. And then in verses 4 to 10, Paul moves his attention from uh, thanksgiving and around uh, uh, speaking about what the church looks like. and, And he moves his attention to the gospel. And more poignantly around the, Jesus' love and the power of the gospel and how this has become real for the church in the Thessalonians. So it says here, verses 4 to 10, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. And the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Acacia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell uh, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Wow, what a powerful passage where where Paul outlines uh, the power of the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ and how it's permeated the people and caused them to change. And really what he's speaking about here, to sum it up, Paul is saying that that through the gospel, uh, we are chosen, we are changed, and we are converted. And it's really important that that we understand that through the gospel and the power of the gospel that we've been singing and worshiping about today, we are chosen, changed, and converted. Let's unpack this a little bit. We are chosen, verses 4 and 5. Well, how did the gospel come to the Thessalonians and indeed to us today? Well, it comes from God and his love for humanity. 
In verse 4, it says that we are loved by God and we are chosen by him. And verse 5 goes on to say, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, the Holy Spirit and a deep conviction. And how we lived, you know, how we lived among you for your sake. See, Paul knew that the Thessalonians were chosen because the gospel came not only with words, but with power, the Holy Spirit. And this deep conviction in their lives and in their hearts to follow Jesus, even in a really difficult situation and context. Do you know that God has chosen you? Do you know it's through God's love for you and for all humanity that he desires for you to be in a life-giving relationship with him? Not necessarily something where you can just kind of tick and go, yep, no worries, I'm all sorted. Probably a great struggle in many ways. And we all have a story. For those of us that follow Jesus, we all have a salvation story that God has saved us and brought us into this new life. And we know what he saved us from. And we probably also know that we're not too far away from being triggered back into a certain behavior or pattern of thought or lifestyle that could actually take us down that way. That's the power of the gospel, saving us. And God has chosen us, and he's chosen you. He loves you, and he wants to be in a deep relationship with you. So we are chosen, but we are also changed. Verses 6 to 8 says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Acacia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only, to the, not only in Macedonia and Acacia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. So I guess the question here is, what effect did the gospel have? What was the effect that the gospel had on the people in Thessalonica and the church of the Thessalonians? Well, the answer is this is that they firstly became imitators. They became imitators of Paul and of the Lord. So they soaked it up. They wanted to know more about it. And then from being an imitator, they became a model. They weren't models. They became a model, a singular word, which suggests that the church moved in one direction. They were united on that front. They imitated Paul and the Lord, and then they became a model to others. And what happened? The message rang out. The message rang out from them to others. It was infectious. It was intoxicating in their own life of how they absorbed the word from God, how they let that work through their life, and how they became a role model to others. And then the message rang out to them. It's a beautiful way that we see the gospel growing. They embraced the gospel and were changed, and their behavior demonstrated this. I have a friend that I grew up with that came to faith in his late teenage years. Uh, His um, mum passed away when he was uh, young, and the last thing that she asked of him is that he would go to a Christian school for the good morals and values, you know? And so he went uh, along to a Christian school and he didn't think much about it uh, in high school. But then he had a gap year at the end of high school and and he came back to uh, South Australia after that gap year and he started to hang out with these guys that he went to school with. And he realized that their faith was real. 
It wasn't just this thing that happened in school, but it was actually something that they lived and they spoke about and they, they had made decisions around their values that actually changed the way that they uh, lived their life. And, and he, after some time, he saw their example and he wanted to imitate them. And he began a relationship with Jesus and he wanted to imitate them and imitate the Lord. And as he grew in his relationship with Jesus, he got opportunities to tell his story. And to tell his story about his upbringing and about how he, uh, how he grew up and how he came to faith. And he would do that in local schools and, and youth groups and things like that. He became a model for others. And then from him, the message of Jesus rang out into others in their lives. He's now pastoring a church and part-time in the church and part-time in a school. And he just keeps living his life in such a way that he wants to introduce people to Jesus. And we had his 40th a few years ago. And, um, you know... When you turn 40, if you're not there yet, you try and relive some of your younger years. And everyone over 40 is just kind of thinking, yeah, yeah, good on you, Mike. It's all ahead of you. And anyway, we went back to this um, club that we used to go to when we were young. And, uh, and he invited uh, all these guys that I hadn't seen in years and years. People that he just spent time with, hung out with, kept reaching out to. When life would move on for the rest of us, and uh, he would still reach out to these people and share life and faith with them. Beautiful man and an example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He imitated the Lord. He became a model and then the message rang out from him. He's an example in my life of a changed man. A changed man through the work of Jesus. Not through things that he's tried to do, but through the power of the gospel and the love of God. He is a changed man. So I've got a pretty pointed question for you right now. And if you've drifted, I want you to come back in and ask, answer this. How has the power of the gospel changed you? How has the power of the gospel changed you? And I want you to be specific. Be specific. How is it that through the love of Christ and the power of the gospel in your life, how has it changed you? How can you articulate that today? And how are you different and more like Jesus because of his power and love in your life? And it might be very obvious that you can say, well, I used to really struggle in this area and I know it's still there, but God has given me his power and his love and now actually I can behave like this. And who are you sharing your faith with? Who is it that you are passing it on? Because you can imitate Jesus. You can become a model. But who are you sharing your faith is how is the message ringing out from your life to the others that God has put around you so we've been chosen and we are changed and we've also been converted verses 9 and 10 says this it says they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead so what, gospel, what difference does the gospel make? Well, the Thessalonian church, it turned to God. It began serving and were waiting for Jesus to return again. And this is pretty wild. Like, this is extraordinary for the first century. Turning away from idols in the first century 
Like this is this is full on. This is like the equivalent in today's day of someone, you know, making a decision not to drive a car or not to use the internet or not to have a mobile phone. Like this is big deal, right? You know, in terms of because idols in the first century were literally everywhere. Like they were literally uh, everywhere. If you know you planted a tree and you wanted it to thrive, you'd go and pray to the relevant God for that to happen. If you were about to go on a business trip and you wanted to receive favor for that, you would go down to the local shrine and you'd pay a visit. If your son or your daughter was getting married, you'd, you'd worship the relevant deity so that you would you know, try and get ahead in that. It was just common practice that these Roman and Greek gods were worshipped everywhere, all the time. So for this young church to turn to God and away from idols... It shows such a transformation, and they're so countercultural in how they're expressing and how they're living their faith. So, this word turned in verse 9 literally means to stop, to turn around, and to go another way. And essentially, this is the visual image of what it means to become a follower of Jesus, you know, to repent and to believe. You know, you turn to God and away from idols, you stop. You turn and you go in another direction. And that direction is following the one true God. So this is the outworking of the gospel in their lives. To turn to God, to serve him and to have a hope and a future. So this young church was chosen, changed and converted. Chosen, changed and converted. And the power of the gospel is as real for us today, as it was in the first century for the church in Thessalonica. And I'm really encouraged by one of the commentators uh, that I read on this. His name's Tom Wright, and he says this of this young church. He says, quite ordinary people had done something extraordinary in response to an unexpected message. These ordinary people have been wrapped up in something quite extraordinary at the initiative of God and quite an unexpected message. And today we have an opportunity to respond to God. And I don't know about you, but I feel pretty ordinary. I feel pretty normal in a lot of ways. But what an opportunity for us to turn to God and say, God, you're the leader of this church. You're the leader of my life. Come and do your work in us. Because essentially this is what Paul was saying. He was saying thank you. Thank you to God for this young church. It's how he starts off his letter because of the work of God in their midst. What a beautiful thing. Imagine if we took stock in six months' time and we just said, thank you, God, for your work in our midst. What would he say if we put a marker in the ground today and we went six months down the track? What would we say because of his work in our midst? And in some ways, what Paul was saying thank you to as well was the great reputation that this young church had for the gospel in this city. And wouldn't it be great for us to, six months down the track, we can say, thank you, God, for your work in our midst. And may we grow in our reputation for you in our city. May we be known as a church for what we are for. You know, I sent a letter out to the church this week, and I think the next six months of the coronavirus is probably going to be some of the, the bumpiest that we might have had here in South Australia. But wouldn't it be great, six months' time, we are known for what we are for 
we are serving King Jesus and our reputation is for the things of the gospel. That's the belief in my heart. I don't know it can be true. And Paul is saying thank you to this young church for their reputation and for the trials that they are enduring for the gospel. And as we close out today, for us to have a living faith, we need to be able to discuss our faith and to wrestle with our faith and to know the things that God is doing in and through us. And one of the commentators that I was reading uh, around this passage came up with six questions uh, around this passage. And I want to uh, put these questions up on the screen and I'm going to ask you to turn to the person next to you and chat about one of the questions that we put up on the screen here. One of the questions. And if you're online, I want you to drop it into the chat. But these are the questions that I want us to respond and reflect in today. The first one here is, are we a community living in God's grace, love and kingdom identity? Are we a community characterized by faith, hope and love? Are we a community committed to Jesus Christ? Are we a community empowered by the Spirit? Are we a community that bears witness to the gospel? And are we a community that turns to God and away from idols? I don't want you to discuss all those six questions because you'll be here till tomorrow. But I want you to choose one. What's the one that jumps off the page at you today? And I want you to spend a few minutes having a chat to the person next to you. You might want to get into groups, three or four. That's fine, I don't mind. But it might also be that that is just a little too confronting, the thought of talking to the person next to you on your left and your right. And that's okay. If you just want to dip your head and have a prayer, you can do that as well. But for us to grow in our living faith, we need to be able to talk about the things that are real and going on. So pick one of these questions, turn to your partner now, your person next to you on your left or your right, and have a conversation. Go. Go.